Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here from Boston. Today, we've got the show on the road. We're on MIT's campus for a national security conference hosted by MIT and uh, Harvard. So it's exciting to be here. And we've got an alum from MIT with us today, Billy Talheimer, CEO of Regent. Uh, very excited to hear from a founder's perspective. You're two and a half years into this unapologetically dual-use use case. Um, so looking forward to having you tell us about the company, your experience, why you got into the space, um, and some of the challenges. So, Billy, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, awesome, Billy. Um, so, you know, how does how does one become a founder? Like, were you, you know, as a kid, you were you always that weird guy trying to invent something? Or kind of what was your path to becoming a founder of kind of this new, innovative way to take on kind of regional error? Yeah, um, well, I originally wanted to be an astronaut because, uh, you know, every kid wants to be an astronaut. And uh, when I started befriending astronauts, they're like, the, if you want to be an astronaut, the best way to do it is to be a fighter pilot first. And I said, well, I've seen Top Gun. I, that looks like a lot of fun. So we started to go down that route. I actually um, tried joining the the Air National Guard. I, I rushed the Burlington Air National Guard, amazing unit there. They're getting F-35s. I got the job and then I was also hiking in the Green Mountains a lot. So I got Lyme disease at the same time. So, okay, back to, you know, industry. I went, I, I did my undergrad and my grad school at MIT here uh, in aerospace engineering. So I went to go work at uh, Aurora Flight Sciences in the Cambridge area doing all sorts of aircraft prototyping. Uh, and basically we were acquired by Boeing about a year into my stay to build EV tolls and innovate in this electric aircraft space. So was an engineer there, program manager, business developer, sort of moved up through the ranks, eventually recovered from Lyme disease. You know, the guard called and said, you want to fly those F-35s? And, uh, you know, Aurora Boeing was like, hey, let's change the world. And so that was uh, an amazingly difficult decision. Um, actually, sort of made me realize and respect the service component of the service because that was really the decision at hand. Um, obviously, I, I made the ultimate decision to uh, say, an engineer and, and sort of a business leader and, and innovate on that side. And within a few months, getting deeper into that space, I basically convinced myself I made the wrong choice. And this whole eVTOL thing wouldn't work, in my opinion. So I want to do something. Like, I was so excited about changing transportation and electrification. I started digging into it. Like, why is this not working, electrifying aircraft? Um, you know, was it was the certification pathways taking a billion dollars in a decade. It was you know, the range where like, I want to go, I grew up in the Boston area here and went to school here and it was a pain to get to New York. So, you know, I wanted to innovate on these regional ranges and today's batteries couldn't take us that far. So to answer the question, it was sort of this winding path of like wanting to do exciting stuff, following my passions in aerospace that eventually led me to like, Hey, I think there's a better way. And then leaving Boeing and, and starting the entrepreneurial journey. Awesome. So it sounds like you're passionate about solving hard problems, mission, and you're a great example of showing how you can do this from the industry side, too. You've kind of toyed, toyed with both and spent time in the traditional defense industrial base with Boeing um, as part of your, your history here. What we like to focus on on our show is the importance of bringing in emerging tech, the high-tech sector, um, smart ups, startups, non-traditionals, and the like. So 
Can you tell us a little bit about just why you think that's so important from an industry perspective? Yeah. Uh, industry moves very quickly. And there is so much motivation and alignment of incentives for industry to innovate because eventually, uh, you know, as revenue-driven companies, uh, we need to generate returns for our investors, right? So we go into it, founders go into it, rosy-eyed, we're changing the world. But then in order to change the world, we have to generate that revenue too. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. So we need to move really fast. You know, I think the reason why I was drawn to industry uh, was because, you know, I was a, I was an athlete in college and, and throughout my younger years too. And it was like that same sort of drive, like we're going to outcompete, we're going to out innovate, like we're going to be the best on the field and, and we're going to win, you know, and there's very much that competition in industry. And that's a good thing. You know, you think about the major technological innovations in history, uh, the space race, you can argue we're in like space race version two right now, or the AI race right now, like competition drives innovation. Uh, and industry is just at the end of the day, competition. And so uh, you need, you know, the industrial base, you need the government side because of, uh, you know, the, the national applicability, because of the funding base there, because of the ability to scale this globally. Uh, you need the academic side as the, you know, technology development center, but the timelines are sort of ill-defined and, and you sort of need to get these new things right. Industry is the link between those two. And industry takes those seedling technologies and figures out how to make them useful, which therefore helps the government and also makes money. So, I, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, and, and I'm sure you saw, you saw it when you were at Boeing, right? With the industrial base, we like to call it kind of future industrial network. Seems like we've lost the middle, right? Your choices are, you know, a big company or a small company that gets, you know, kind of uh, bought by a big company or a bunch of little small companies that don't really have the ability to scale. Uh, you're part of, I would say, this new movement of venture-backed companies that can use venture funding and dual use as a way to scale back into the middle of the industrial base uh, and not try and convince a big company that it's, we've got to move agilely or a small one. How, how do you see that playing out? What's kind of been your learning as you're trying to you know, work with investors and all that and really scale into the middle of the industrial base uh, quickly. Yeah, I think uh, th this new ilk of, uh, you know, industrial technologies, venture-backed startups that are building hardware and manufacturing technologies is exciting and critical and will continue, but is really hard. Like It is called hardware for a reason. You know, atoms are harder than bits. Uh, and that's especially difficult on the venture side, you know, and and to some extent, going back to that competition, like the hardware companies have an additional burden on them when they go and pitch to an investor and the investor says, show me you can make these 100x returns and build a moat uh, and be capital efficient along the way. And, you know, I have to sit here developing uh, human carrying, human safe hardware and say along my test campaign, I'm going to push this thing to the limit. I'm going to explore the envelope. I'm going to crash a few of these things. And when I do... It's going to cost millions of dollars because the hardware is going to break and we're going to have to rebuild it. We can't just revert to the last you know, push of code right, and fix it from there. Um, so there's this huge additional burden to us. But um, when I look at some of the world changing companies right now, you know, when I look at SpaceX and Tesla and Anduril, you know, there is this huge hardware component because hardware eventually builds the mode at the end of the day and says, you, know, you can't follow on to me because I've crashed a hundred different times. And we fixed it and we found the investors with the buy-in to say, yes, I see your vision and you're doing the right engineering process and you're breaking it the right amount, the right number of times because 
zero is too few and a hundred is too many. You found the balance and we'll, we'll take you uh, the rest of the way. So I think it's important and it will continue, but it's going to continue to be difficult. And, and just for our listeners, give them a little sense of, of what you're trying to accomplish with region and kind of why you think that's exciting, both in a commercial and a dual use kind of uh, a military environment. At the end of the day, region is changing regional transportation. So we are, uh, as you said, Lauren, we're a proud dual use company. Uh, we really founded with the commercial vision as I was coming from that uh, electric aviation space, myself and my co-founder, Mike Klinker, we're focused on commercial transportation. You know, how do we get people on these key regional missions where you get stuck in traffic if you take a car and you're sitting in the airport longer than you're in the airplane? Uh, and so we said, well, we can build this electric flying machine that actually operates in the maritime domain called a sea glider. We, we created the world's first sea glider, it does dock to dock over water transportation, flies within a wingspan of the surface of the grounds, is powered entirely by batteries. So what it offers is uh, the speed of an aircraft, the convenience of a ferry uh, at a cost that is half that of an aircraft with zero emissions. And so we see unlocking these coastal markets. And it turns out that 40% of the world's population lives in coastal communities. So routes like Boston, New York, LA, San Francisco, Hawaii, the Caribbean, the entire global ferry market in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific Islands is accessible by this. And then what we found once we got in it is, hey, this technology is incredibly applicable to changing national defense and security strategy in the Indo-Pacific, where we're island hopping in the same vehicle, the same technology that enables easy, accessible, high-speed island hopping for a Hawaii vacationer is the same one that can transport troops and supplies in the Indo-Pacific. So you're looking at both the commercial markets and the U.S. government as a customer. Two questions. One, how do your investors feel about that? And two, two and a half years in, what's it been like, like comparisons between the two? Yeah. Building hardware, as I said, is very hard. And so that dual use part is, has actually been critically important for us to convince investors that we can go the distance. You know, Regent doesn't have the billion dollar ticket to get to revenue because of our certification pathway, but it's certainly in the hundreds of millions. Like we are building safety critical human flying machines that are flying at high speeds and low altitudes. And we need to assure that every time, whether it's uh, you know, a commercial passenger or someone in our armed services that they're going to be safe on that mission. Uh, so certainly hundreds of millions of dollars and an investor looks at that and says, well, I'm not going to pay the whole way for you to get there. Uh, and so with this very strong federal mission and applicability with non-dilutive capital along the way, we can say it's not you. We're not going to come back to you. Uh, we have this government way of funding this development of getting through the valley of death, developing hardware. Uh, and then the the key of being a successful dual use company is to sell the same widget to both parties, right? My commercial product is my defense product. Uh, and that's the key because on both sides, your customers will take you down rabbit holes of new features and timelines and all this stuff. And so in our case, we've actually been very successful in saying this first sea glider, this electric powered flying machine uh, with 180 mile range is going to be the same one that you know is operating in Hawaii and Miami and New York, and same one that's operating for the Marine Corps in the Pacific. That that focus and discipline seems really important, especially now it, with our kind of economic outlook and times too. And I think it's hard for companies because I'm glad you mentioned you see this on the commercial side too. But to develop bespoke technologies, so I think a big part of the value of debt. So it's interesting to hear that. 
you, you had two questions. I'm trying to remember what your second one was. So the one which you hit on was the investors are actually supportive. Yes. So I thought that was interesting. Sometimes we hear, hey, no, focus on commercial, maybe 10 percent on uh, U.S. government as a customer. But it sounds like it's got a really supportive group of investors. And you also hit on both the pros and, and cons of each side, too. And it sounds like it's a pretty fluid um I think the successful dual-use companies are going to be able to manage their way through a focus as they grow. And and right now, our plan is really 50-50 commercial defense deliveries. Uh, And this gives us a fantastic story to investors because uh, they almost alternate in their relevancy. On the commercial side, we can lock people up on contracts now. They can put firm deposits down. We can count them. We can say we'll deliver you this Sea Glider vessel in this year and this date. Uh, and we know very specifically what those pre-delivery payments and, and revenue payments look like. Very modelable. Um, on the defense side, we can get development dollars uh, right now. We can get 6.3 and 6.4 money to bring these products to market, which are actually much larger in magnitude than the deposits we get on the commercial side. So we can use development dollars from DOD to fund uh, development of technology, which is laid out in sort of clear revenue from the commercial side, which then may have a much bigger sort of end game in a program of record for DOD, which is very ethereal, right? Like mm. we know it starts with a B and we know we're selling hundreds to thousands of these, but what does it look like? How long does it take to get there? I think um, defense focus investors are aptly so uh, apprehensive of like, I go into them and I pitch them. I say, we're going to have a, a sea glider program of record and we're going to make billions of dollars. And I'm like, well, how do you get there? And that's a very difficult process. And there are not many companies besides those times we talked about that are doing that. So to be able to say, well, even if that completely evaporated, we have development dollars from DOD right now and we're going to sell thousands of these to our commercial customers. It's still a very strong business model. So we, we can play both sides. And then as the company grows, really follow where the world is going. Maybe we... Uh, you know, uh, maybe we lean more over to defense. Maybe we need to pivot more over to commercial. But again, if we're selling the same product to both, that's something we can do. So we, uh, Lauren and I are actually um, super stoked for all of the, um, I would say, younger folks that listen to the podcast. And, uh, and, uh, and at, at the conference today, there's hundreds, you know, that are interested in national security and interested in figuring out how to do amazing things for the country. And and found country, uh, found their own companies. Um, as a founder, you know, you're, you know, it's a special, uh, a special treat and probably hell at the same time. What would you, what would you say to those folks who think they want to be a founder or are aspiring to be a founder? What, what, what do you love about it? And what are maybe a couple of lessons learned you've had a couple of years into the gig so far? Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is simultaneously the absolute best job, most freedom, most sort of passion and, and ownership uh, that I've ever had. And, and simultaneously has also put me through some of the, you know, the deepest hell, right? So um, as a founder, you are trying to bring some, like you bring a new technology or capability to the world. There's a reason it hasn't been into the world before. You know, the technology hasn't existed or people have tried and failed. But regardless, there's been billions of very smart people on this planet for, you know, thousands of years. And if this thing hasn't been reality before, like it's probably very difficult. So you just need to accept that if you're creating something new, there's a reason it hasn't been here. So you need to convince people not only that this technology is good, and, and will service the world and generate value and generate returns to the investors. We're going to pay for you to build it, uh, but also that it's possible now and also that you're the person to do it. So I think, you know, as 
I went into this journey, one of the best things for me, we actually applied to Y Combinator and that was, you know, our, our first check it was going through that accelerator. Uh, and whether, you know, aspiring founders want to apply to Y Combinator or not, Y Combinator does have some amazingly successful companies and a fantastic process to do this. And I would super encourage them to just go through the free questionnaire. And there's no pitch deck with Y Combinator. You, you, answer the questions on the questionnaire and then they, they decide if you want to come in for a pitch. So you don't get, you know, fancy graphics and animations. You don't get to do a demo. It's like, can you answer these questions? And that questionnaire uh, very succinctly defines like, you should be able to answer these in two sentences immediately all the time in any pitch. And, and if you can, and if you feel really confident about them, then, you know, you have the chance of going the next step. And that next step is the even harder spot. You know, I think some people attribute a lot of uh, value and, and ownership and even sort of equity ownership. Like it was my idea. Like I came up with this and that's, you know, 0.000 whatever percent, like all of it is in execution. It's in raising money, getting customers, building the team and keeping them together. Uh, and of course, actually delivering the, the technology you're bringing to market. So there is so much on a founder's plate, whatever your skill set is. I was an engineer. Uh, some come from business, uh, Whatever your skill set is, there's no way you've experienced, unless you found it before, but as a, as a young first-time founder, there's no way you've experienced all the things that a business do, marketing and legal and HR and technology and sales and manufacturing. No way you've covered all those things. So you need to go into it with that open mind being ready. We had General McConville this morning opening up the conference talk about how people are the Army's number one priority and recruitment, workforce issues, talent are top of mind for leaders across DOD. As a, a leader in the industry you're in, how, how, how are you thinking about recruiting? Do you see an appetite to work for the Department of Defense on the industry side? Curious for your take. I totally agree with General that the people are everything. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're smart and intentional and understand the technology, like the technology is possible, could be built easy. The question is, can you build it on time to spec with a high enough quality that it's repeatable? That all comes down to team. And team is everything. So recruiting is everything for us. You know, I think I'm probably seeing on Twitter a hundred times, like the only thing a CEO should be doing is raising money and building a team. And like, that's, we should, we do other stuff. I'll honestly say that, but you know, uh, it's not that far off. Uh, so in terms of, you know, working uh, for both sides and working for DOD specifically, we've actually found great strength in that. We have some amazing uh, veterans on our team and we find that the, the training there uh, is is really fantastic from a, a value set and a skill set from an independence ability. And then the the other part of that is when we have veterans come in a region, we're like, all right, you're an in industry now. Here we go. You know, buckle up. You know, those rules you had before. Now you need to start thinking outside the box and expanding in that space. So we we found it to be a, a great strength, uh, and we're really proud of the veterans on our team. Um, but there is that sort of pace of industry that you know we're on the field together playing at this world championship level uh, that is a huge part of, you know, growing our team. So no shortage of talent that has this drive for mission or patriotism. You're still seeing on the industry side some excitement about the issues you're focused on. There's definitely excitement about both missions. I think depending on who we hire, there may or may not be a lack of understanding. You know, we say we're doing sea gliders for DOD. What does that mean? Like, are we strapping missiles on the thing tomorrow? Uh, are we uh, delivering supplies? Like, what's the difference between those missions? Uh, you know, honestly, at sometimes there are hesitation, especially on those more militarized, weaponized machines. You know, I, I don't want to build something that could kill someone, whether or not it's, it's, you know, in the name of national security and protecting, you know, our servicemen and women. 
Um, it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, fortunately, to some extent, as a dual use company with these commercial interests at the, the mission that makes the most sense for us to sell that same widget to both sides is a logistics mission. And we can be very proud of that, that backbone support, which is a key part of the military as a first market. Um, you know, what the future holds is unclear. And I think that's something that we're going to continue to, it, honestly, that we're going to continue to have to uh, sort of administer as we grow and as the, the dual use rises. Yeah. And, I, and again, one of the, I think, enduring strengths of a democracy is an ability to choose. And so, you know, if somebody chooses they want to work in national defense oriented or not is not a good or bad thing. It's just a choice. Uh, I think, as you say, an advantage of some of these dual use kind of companies is you can make that choice and there's there's plenty of rooms to contribute. How is your sense? You know, uh, I was at your uh, your big event yesterday, which was a uh, which was awesome. And one of the things that I was really impressed with was your focus on building the industrial capacity to do this. It was sometimes we see the kind of venture back startups get a little enamored with their own technology, and they want to prove the technology, but not manufacture at scale to actually solve a customer's. Uh, from what what's your learning been as you're kind of um, you know talking about six hundred thousand square foot facilities and rebuilding manufacturing that may or may not exist already? How are you how are you thinking through that as a CEO and what are you learning so far in your journey there? Yeah, uh, well, I'm I'm first off glad you brought up that event because it was yeah. awesome. We unveiled uh, the full scale mock up of our Sea Glider. We're we're going to be flying humans on board a full scale Sea Glider prototype next year, so we're moving super fast. Um, but you are absolutely right. You know, there are multiple steps in the, in the development of, uh, like us, a, a hardware, a vehicle technology. You need to sort of de-risk that the technology is possible. For us, that's our float foil fly operations and no one's done before. And we did that at a scale prototype in the seed round and, and moving on to the phase we're in now and what that unveiling day transitioned us into is this full-scale uh, prototype development, basically uh, the prototype of your product vehicle with all the capabilities, you know, all the safety systems as we're carrying humans on board to do that, and then manufacturing. And that's a massive step. Uh, so we are thinking, it sort of goes back to like what powers startups and, and what powers that industrial base. Like it is generating that return to our investors on one half, that it just like it is changing the world and, and that passion and motivation. So we don't make money until we deliver sea gliders to our customers, be them commercial or defense. Like we got to build them. We got to build them at scale. And that's how we, we get the money back to our investors. The hard part of that is how expensive manufacturing facilities are. Like there's a reason that most of the companies coming out of Y Combinator are SaaS and fintech right now. Like you do not need those brick and mortar facilities, which cost tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And as a startup here, you know, Regents raised. $50 million to date in two and a half years. We, we think we're doing pretty good there, but we couldn't even pay for one massive sea glider manufacturing facility with all the money we raised to date. Um, so we need to start thinking ahead. We need to start building these relationships. We're very strongly uh, linked with the state being based in Rhode Island. We're strongly linked with our uh, you know development entities in Quonset Development Corporation, Rhode Island Airport Coordinate, uh, Corporation. Um, you know, when we think about how to build these things, we think about leverage. How can we finance them? How can we have third parties develop them? We need to remember what we're good at. Regent builds sea gliders. We design and build the aerodynamics and hydrodynamics, and we write flight software that controls them and keeps them safe. We don't uh, build buildings. <laughs> you know, we, we don't 
set up, uh, we, we don't like build the molds for these things. There are amazing aerostructures and, and carbon fiber boat builders out there that can do that. Uh, we don't build batteries or motors or flight computers. Again, there are world leaders in that space. We can source all these components, integrate them at region headquarters at, and our manufacturing facilities, which have been subsidized and, and even developed by other groups so that we can just pay the rent on it. And then we go back to our investors and say, this is the most ruthlessly capital efficient way to generate your return. Yeah. And I think a key that I go back to diversity and the power of diversity, right? If you're a tech startup, you may not know how to scale production. You may not know how to go buy a building. You may not know this or that. And, and building a team that has those skills and not kind of trying to do it all yourself, I think is, is a discriminator of those companies that can scale quickly. Uh, you know, go find the right talent, make them part of the team, kind of team of teams saying you're finding that to be true. Yeah. I think it's super important to be conscious of sort of what phase you are in, in the development and like region has been moving super quick. And so we're almost in a new phase every, every half or so, but you know, we're in to, to give you an example, you know, region has a list of core values that we, that we hold ourselves to. It's one of the ways that we, you know, ensure that we're recruiting the right people who can, who can thrive in this very high pace, high pressure environment. Uh, you know, it's, we, we hold ourselves to these core values. And so when we think about early on with our, with our quarter scale prototype, uh, one of the core values was, uh, you know, focus on the right things and use the 80, 20 rule, because we, a lot of us came from some of those large aerospace primes where we saw analysis paralysis. And can you prove this beyond a reasonable doubt that this test is going to work? And we said, you know, we're building an unmanned prototype and this is about proof of the technology. And if we you know, dig it into the water a few times, like that's okay as long as no one gets hurt. And we had as another core value always and throughout because we're working with batteries and, you know, high voltage systems and, and we're building real hardware, uh, no compromises on human safety. Um, so those two core values, you know, worked in tandem well and had a balance when we were doing unmanned prototyping. Now Regents in the next phase and we're doing, uh, you know, human operated prototypes with humans on board and that human safety is critical. So now we don't have that 80-20 rule in the core values anymore. They're, they're a living document because the company's phases is changing. And I, as CEO, buck stops with me. I never want to be in a position where we hurt someone and an engineering leader comes to me and says, you know, but Billy, I use the 80-20 rule on this decision like the core value said. So you, you can't even have that doubt. Right now, safety paces everything. The core value is no compromises on human safety and we need to proceed in that. And, you know, in our next phase of manufacturing, it's not going to be a, a safety thing that we're talking about. But, you know, what does the composition of our workforce look like right now? We're largely engineers and creators. Soon we're going to need a staff of hundreds to thousands of manufacturing experts at our facility. So just being very conscious of like where you are in the phase, what leadership you need and what advice, what advisors who have gone through this before should you have on your team to help you be successful? Awesome. Billy, we have a lot of listeners from the Hill. So I, I want to footstop your point about the difficulties with manufacturing here. There's such an emphasis on shoring up crit critical capabilities, bringing back manufacturing. We're seeing things like the CHIPS Act or support an industrial policy for these issues. But I think it's, it's uh, so important for you to detail as a founder the challenges that come along with that in the hardware realm. Um, but with that, Billy, I want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing those insights. I think extremely uh, timely for our listeners as we think through all the different dynamics here. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you both. It was awesome to be here and uh, just awesome to be doing this podcast from MIT too. I got to give another shout out. <laughs> You've been listening to Building the Base. 
a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.